Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I am Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 74 of the North Meet South Web podcast. Dude, I gotta tell you, I'm really tired. I'm really, really tired. Really freaking tired. I am. Yes. It has this, been. This, this shift in time zones is not helpful. Uh, you know what? I think I told you this. That, that we did our last time zone change, like our last one. So we're, yeah. we are now forever and ever on to the... Uh, you know, I don't even know what it is. I just know that we're not changing time again. So yeah, so you you now are on summertime, and so you're just gonna stay, but but you're on summertime now. Yeah, like you went forward, and now you're staying forward. Exactly, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, as far as I know, the House voted on it, but the Senate hasn't voted on it yet, or vice versa, or something. And just for our state, of course. But we'll see what happens. So I'm hopeful nice. though, because I hate the day, I hate the change in times stuff. <laughs> it's annoying. Yeah, I would be happy if it was summertime all the time. And you know what? Who is this guy? I. I've I feel like I've seen his name before. Let me give a quick shout out. Rod Elias. Rod Elias hanging yeah, out with he's us. He's up yeah. at 120 a.m. listening. So Rod, thanks for hanging out with us, man. Appreciate it. Well, you know what? Uh, you have been working your full head off on then ping me these yeah. last I don't know week and a half, two weeks, whatever. You've had a bit of a holiday, as they say, in the. Australian land. You know what else I heard the other day that I was like, oh, that's an Aussie thing. Is um, and it's not Aussie. I think it's British, but translates down to you guys is done and dusted. We don't use done that and phrase. dusted. We don't use. You don't say phrase. done and dusted. We do not say done and dusted. I wish I was done and dusted. Do you know what it means? Like where? No, well, that's not correct. Do you know the etymology? I think is I don't correct. know the etymology. These are just the kinds of things that you hear and you say because you say done them dusted. after you hear them. Yeah. Yeah. So, what does it mean to you? What does "done and dusted" mean to you? It means we're finished and we're ready to move on. Yeah. So, "done and dusted" was like when you would sign a document, the ink would be wet yet for a while, right? When you're using like those quill pens, or whatever, mm-hmm. so they would dust it. So that's like seals the thing. So it's like done. It's written and it's dusted. Done and dusted. Completely finished. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that was interesting because I heard you say it like a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, "What does that mean?" I'm sure that's a <laughs> phrase that they use. And then I heard somebody else say it. And then I saw it on a TV the other day, like a TV screen. It said done and dusted. I was like, okay, I've got to look this up. So anyway, that's it. Now, that's now, you're, up to date. now you're up to date. So I would like to spend a little bit of time talking about then ping me. But before we do, any interesting, weird stuff going on that you've been interacting with at work or anything like that? Well, no. Yeah, I've you've been, been off work. Never mind. So your work has been then ping me. That's not entirely true. I, I am off, but I got a phone call because I work from an internet provider. So I got a phone call from my boss at like 4.30 on Friday afternoon and the National Broadband Network, which is the wholesale provider for the majority of internet across Australia, which is a government-owned entity at the moment, has come out with a whole heap of relief packages and things like that for people that have been laid off or they're on... Sure. Um, support programs and things like that to to help keep them connected. Yeah, yeah. So we had to scramble to get a press release out to add a special offer. So I was, I think I finished, I had to go and pick Eli up from childcare. So I didn't really start until about seven. But yeah, I, I finished up about 10 o'clock on Friday night, getting all of this together. And, and it's it's been really good for the people that, that need it. We've had a whole heap of extra customers come on board and, and take up the offer, which is really good considering that we, you know, launched it, announced it at 10 o'clock on a Friday night and, and it's a weekend. Weekends are usually pretty quiet in terms of acquisition, but things have been going really well over the weekend in terms of picking up and and helping these people out. So yeah, it was it was interesting to get called into into work on a Friday, but 
these are strange times. So we they do are. what we can to help really out people are. as much as we can. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Unprecedented. I'm Un- I mean, we had some friends we were just talking to us that they're like, we're so tired of hearing all these like phrases now. It's unprecedented. This is, you know, like, you know, stay apart, stay, stay safe. I don't know. Like just all the, all the people, all the things that people say. Yeah. Oh, all the cliches. Uh, yeah. All those cliches. It looks like YouTube uh-huh. wasn't working. So sorry if you were trying to watch this on YouTube. Okay. So a couple of things. So one of the things I'm working on right now at work is uh, this card gateway. So it's a payment collection utility. I don't know, it's, not, it's like a payment instrument where you can go in and put your payment information, right? So we're going to handle all the PCI mm-hmm. compliance portion of it and all that. So it's been really interesting because I get to basically make the form whatever I want it to be. So I've been digging in through all of this like best practice UI stuff as far as like what is the way, what is the best way to present this and to you know make sure that the users are getting the best experience on mobile and to make sure that we have the lowest amount of abandon rates, et cetera, et cetera. There's been this, this website that I've found extremely useful and I'm going to try and find it real quick. It's like Nielsen and something. I'm not going to find it. I'll, I'll link it up in the show notes after, afterwards. But they have like all these best practices for checkout forms, uh, which is really helpful. Smashing Magazine had another one. But one of the challenges that we had is, is trying to fit everything onto this page. And we almost went the route of using, using floating labels. Have you ever used floating labels before? Do you know what those are? I've, I've never used them, but I'm, a, I'm familiar with them. Yeah. So there's like you have a placeholder and then when they focus into the input, that placeholder basically moves up to be a label on that input. And then, you know. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So we had to make some trade-offs this week around that. But there was I, I found a lot of really interesting reading on that. And so I might mm-hmm. actually uh, make a little blog post up about that or something because there's some really great resources out there. And a lot of it is specifically focused around mobile users and how you can make sure that their experience is the best. Because I feel like more and more, that's how people are consuming these 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 things, right? Is through a mobile yeah. uh, context. Even payments, especially almost payments, like a lot of our visitors are mobile users. And so really optimizing that experience to make sure that it's great. Some of the things that we have, though, on our phones uh, really do help to aid this experience. But you have that there's like some gotchas you got to be really careful about. So one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to use an address field like Algolia Places. So Algolia mm-hmm. Places, will you start typing in your address and it auto gives you, hey, this is the city state zip. And you say, excellent. You press enter and away you go. Uh, but what we were doing to kind of make our form look less visually complex, because when users arrive on your page, they sort of do a quick mental tally, like how much work is this mm-hmm. going to take to get done, right? So first impression is actually really important. Like how many fields are there? How difficult is it? Is it really dense? Is it got a little bit of space to it? Whatever. So we hid some of the fields that weren't necessary. So we had name and then in your address and we hid city, state and zip and address too. And so they would fill in address one. And then as they would get the address back from Algolia places, they would press enter and it would fill in the city state zip for them. Right. What we realized is that would break any of the autofill capability that you would have on your mobile phone. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, these are the sorts of things we keep running into, like little things, little gotchas like that. They also say that you should never, ever, ever, ever use a drop down if you can avoid it on a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of times you'd use that for like a state or something, right? So we have yeah. 50 states, you'd click it and you have, you know, that way you can make sure they never mess it up. But like it's, they said like, don't do that. Just give them a two character input box and just let them type it in, right? It's going to be way easier yeah. than having to have them select it. 
Same thing with like month and day and year, like for or actually it's month and year, right? Don't do a drop down. Don't separate them. Just be as intelligent as you can. Give them a uh, number input field and have them just type it in. So it's yeah, been- Yeah, those it's, drop downs. The drop downs yeah. for expiry are interesting because you don't know whether that, like for example, the month, are they are they one through 12? Are they zero, one through 12? Are they January through, January through February? And if you're just tabbing through a form and you start typing, yeah, crap you know it's not that you've got to open it up you've got to look you've got to find you've got to click it's easier and then to handle the validation on your end once that's totally. done as opposed to trying to have the drop downs 100 um, percent. yeah yeah so just being like intelligent about it and like also like trying to you know it's like the whole front end versus back end validation and how intelligent do you want to be on the front end like you can even do things like validate bank account routing numbers and stuff like that on the front end before you ever touch mm-hmm. the back end so those sorts of things are really handy and convenient so we actually just had like a record month last month of transactions through our payment gateway that we built a year ago. I don't think I'm able to disclose the number, but it was an extremely significant amount. It's gone like it's hockey sticked. Like first month yeah. we had like four payments and then the next month we had nine and then it was like a 78, 300. Like it just keeps going up and like, yeah, the average payment amount is like, significant it's like in hundreds of you know in the hundreds of dollars so like we it's doing a really good job so it's like hey it's good pour gasoline on this fire and uh you know like make this form even better because right now it's doing a crazy redirect Mm -hmm. redirecting to this like old 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 payment yeah oh it's horrible dude it's so bad isn't it great i've got a client like that they've got a payment thing and and you go through this designed you know we've we, we built them a form i built them a form and it's this whole designed application, and then when you when it comes time to make the payment, it redirects you to like this janky yeah. page on a on a on on a different website, which is loaded an iframe from the the bank, which then you know takes the payment and then redirects back to our website to to handle the the completed transaction. So yeah, some of that bank stuff is really gnarly. It's so bad. It's really bad. And like the thing is, once they leave your page, you completely lose any ability to help them. Like yep. you can't do anything to help. You can't suggest anything. There's no intelligence. There's no like, yep. hey, it looks like you're having a problem. Like, can one of our representatives help fix this for you? Or what? Mm-hmm. There's none of that. Like they're gone. Yep. They're off your page. There's just nothing the you best. can do. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Cross your fingers. And if they never come back, you're like, I guess they abandoned or it just yep. never worked. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's been that's been interesting. So that's been that's been fun. Wilbur Power is working with me on that. And uh, we basically just do like calls and I just tell him change this. And he's like, okay, so we can just change it live. <laughs> I feel so bad for him because sometimes it's like, I, I don't know. It's not a great, it's not probably a great way to do it, but he, he bears yeah. with me. He's quite patient with me. <laughs> Here was the one other thing I wanted to talk to you about. Okay. So this is, uh, this is applicable to everybody really. So what is your heuristic for when you split something out to a class versus just putting it in a private method? So we had, for example, this situation where we needed to save and rename this document. We needed to save it to a local. Then we needed to put this PDF like stamp on it. Then we needed to resave it to a different location, whatever. But the file name was significant because the file was named in a specific way that allowed us to parse data off of it and then stamp the page with like that information. Mm-hmm. And then we had to rename that using pieces of that file name in the in the rename, the final rename. So uh, in the original, we just had like a simple private method that was just like parse the file name and get the pieces off and return it. 
And then they came in with a change that was saying, uh, hey, we need to rename it to include three of the pieces of information, but not all of them. Whereas before we were just saving it as what it originally was. The question is like, do you create a couple more private methods or you split it out to a class that's like a data transport object that knows how to like basically build itself out of a file path? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like what is like, what is the dividing line? And obviously like it depends is the answer. Yeah. But like, do you have any things that you kind of look for when you're looking at something to say, like, is it just a visual reference for you? Is it just like, eh, this looks sort of like it's like it's getting messy or is it like a... I'm really having a hard time testing this and so I'm going to change it out or is it I feel like I'm using this in multiple places and you're trying to dry it up or whatever because this was literally only going to get used in this one spot. It was never going to get really used again. So my argument, my first instinct was like split it to a class and my other developer's first instinct was like just create another method. Mm -hmm. So like what like what's your comfort level in those situations? Like what's your kind of gut reaction to that and i don't know again it's hard to say without like code in front of you yeah but yeah. um if you only have code that's being used in one place do you extract it to a class or do you just keep it as a public or private method or something i mean i suppose it yeah it does it does depend always it, right it always depends it depends on on the surrounding context is like how much other stuff is in where this private method is yeah and and are you like how long is the current class getting? Yeah, right? how big is the current class? How much are you muddying the current class with this specific logic? And and you know, what level of testing do you need? Like, if you're happy just to hit the public interface and you don't care to test the individual private methods, you're just happy to see the the side effects of the the public interface. Then you know it could be fine. Uh, I think it was Jeffrey Way that coined the term like ick driven development or something like that. Mm, where when you look at it, is it like <laughs> is it gross to look yeah, at? Yeah, I I did this with in then ping me when when it comes to handling alerts, and it was just a method initially that I then pulled all of it out into a class because then you get a much more expressive, much more readable API. So before it was just like this raise alert, and that was in a trait, and then we just called that, and it was and it was a bunch of protected uh, private methods and it was it was tricky to test the individual bits of it so i pulled it out into a class called raise and then you can be like raise colon colon alert for subject or whatever and then it gives you the readability but it also gives you the ability to test in isolation that that class and that it's doing what you need it to do and i think that's kind of the the driver for me if you've got private methods that you can use reflection you can do all kinds of horrible things to expose those private methods to be tested but I I typically try and avoid private methods wherever possible, um, just because it makes it more difficult to test in a lot of scenarios. So, and, and as I said, it comes back to the context: Do you care about testing the individual parts of that functionality, or do you need to be able to just observe the side effects and say, given this input to this class or this input to this method, did I get back from it what I was expecting? at the end of it. So that could just be as simple as seeing that an event was dispatched with the correct parameters or right. that you had a record in the database. You know, Laravel makes that kind of stuff really easy, whether you're using assert true on an exist query or if you're using the assert database has and things like that. So yeah, it, it, it's context dependent, but a lot of it comes down to what it looks like and, and how it feels and how much 
how much stuff is really in that class. So I, I'm not going to extract something based on architecture or, or for the sake of, you know, purity or anything like that. But if it starts to feel heavy and bloated, then then I'll probably consider pulling it out into something something separate. Yeah. I think for me, like it, it is this like balancing act of like, I certainly, it's really nice when you can just do end to end and you can just test side effects, which is great. But when you have these sort of shared logic, so a perfect example is like what you've done with like extracting things to language files where you're saying, I know that I need to expect this sort of output, right? If you have to share that somewhere, like if like in your test, you have to like do magic string sort of stuff mm-hmm. or, or for example, or if in your test, you have to do some sort of parsing uh, that the class is doing in order to be able to get the same result at the end. Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. you have to basically duplicate what your class is doing in order to make sure that it can do the, sa- the thing in your test, mm-hmm. it either means that you need to be able to extract that thing and test it a little bit better. Right. Or I suppose like when you said when you said you like to avoid private methods as much as possible, did you mean in general you like to avoid private methods or you like to avoid testing private methods? I I tend to avoid having private methods. I'll use protected, but private, it depends on if I want to test it, right? Uh, Sometimes if it's just a little throwaway thing, like you want to extract an if statement into a a well-named private method. So instead of sure, saying yeah, if right, yeah, this yeah. has some condition or, you know, this dollar blah equals equals that dollar, you know, whatever, to to name that thing, you know, that it, this has some condition, that could probably, and I'm not expecting like in my controllers for people to ever extend them. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, protected or private doesn't, doesn't really bother me too much, but yeah, private, I would seldom use, I think. Yeah, it's a... Um... The, the guy that I'm talking about specifically kind of what he told me the other day is he's like, I'm kind of tending right now towards longer methods. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, okay. Like, what does that mean? Like, what is the motivation behind that? Because to me, if I see a method that has like more than like 10 or 12 lines, it's sort of like, hmm, yeah, what's going on there? Like, is that really like does that stuff belong like in just a method on another class or does that justify mm-hmm. like its own class? Like, is that a job that's happening there? Are you yeah. updating like multiple pieces of code there? Like, okay. Um, are you dispatching stuff? Okay. Like it just doesn't, you know, and, and I think his argument is this, well, I just want to see what's going on. Like, I don't want to have to click through five places to figure out what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, I just want to see what's going on there. Yeah. I think my counter to that is go look at your tests. If you want to see what's going on, go look at your tests and see what assertions yeah. are being made. You know what I mean? Well, and this is and this is where the readable method names come into it. That if you want to see what's going on, and I actually had this discussion with the the new guy that started with us a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, I can extract all these things to methods, but at the end of the day, it's going to be the same. I'm like, yes, it's going to be this the same, but instead of having 50 lines in this method, you're going to have 10 lines. And it's going to be much more readable. So if I if I care to evaluate what the conditional method is doing, you know, your guard clause method, then I can go and look at that to make sure that, you know, your logic is correct and that, and that you're doing the right thing. But in terms of reading a 10-line method versus a 50-line method that's got inline conditionals and it's looping through things and it's returning values and using temporary variables and things like that, I think 
you know, from a from a processing load, especially if I'm doing code review, I don't want to read a fifty a fifty line method. I'm happy to read five ten line methods or ten five line methods because it's easy to process and it's easy to digest what's happening in each of those things. And this is where I think Adam goes, you know, start the outside in. And then when you need to drop down to the unit level, when you need to test some specific piece of functionality, say on a model or within a class, then you can start doing that. And and going back to the alert stuff that that I was working on, I started with an inline method, wrote all the tests to make sure that worked and then extracted to a class Correct. because, yeah. you know, it worked a lot better that way. And then I could have te- uh, tests for the specific methods in the class to make sure that the class was doing what needed to be done which gave me some assurance that the class behaved outside of the context of of the end-to-end test, which was saying that given I received an alert, here are all the side effects that are observed. So I, I think they go hand in hand. I, I certainly want to try and keep the, the complexity and the length of my methods down. And I think that's, you know, if you, if you run any of those insight tools or metric tools or those kinds of things, they'll all start to bath once your methods start to get a bit longer by default. And I thought... It was interesting. I was watching some of Caleb's videos on um, rebuilding Alpine and and he specifically said in there, you know, I, I like to bump my font size up really big so I can focus on what's happening. And if it's, you know, if it's more than a screen's worth of scrolling, then the method's too big kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it, it's an interesting metric. It's like, it's purely an aesthetic thing in a lot of instances, but it also makes you really think about what those methods are doing. Yeah, I know. Like, so like, I'm in, I'm in almost complete agreement with everything that you're saying. Like I do that, like, you know, red, write the tests, green, slime it, make it work, refactor. Now everything still mm-hmm. works, but now I have it, it's readable. So I'll have a class and like, sometimes in like, you know, what do you call like, you have like a handle method and then the handle method is yeah. basically just delegating a bunch of crap. And so you can say, mm. if this should be run, then you know what I mean? Or or basically yeah. maybe like if this file is not available, return false, you know, mm-hmm. guard clause. And then you yep. say uh, in the bottom, you say this stamp PDF, whatever, this move PDF to archive, this delete original PDF, right? And then you just know, mm-hmm. okay, that's what's happening. That's what's going on. But then if you like want to break down what's happening, right? Sometimes if you have to click around to those methods, you can lose track a little bit. But, uh, you know, and so basically what he, this this guy, uh, this other developer is doing is it's not like it's bad code. It's really not. He just kind of like prefers. I think he prefers to like write a comment instead of extracting it to a method. Mm-hmm. Like he'll just write a well-formed comment that says like, this is what this is doing. Two lines. This yeah. is what this is doing. Two lines. Here's what this and is then doing. You end up, One line. Then you end up with, with a scenario where you've got more comments than you've got actual code explaining what you're doing instead of just extracting readable methods. Yeah. I, I'd so, so yeah, that's what I'm comfortable with. Like I'm comfortable with like extract a readable method or extract a class or whatever. And I mm-hmm. think the other piece is too. the other piece for me with the class is like, it's easier to test and geez, dude, it is freaking easier to change. It is yeah, so much absolutely. easier to change. Like if you have like a hundred methods, it's like open, closed principle, right? Mm-hmm. Open for extension, closed for modification. So you know, like this class just always works. Like it doesn't freaking care at all what the file name is. It doesn't care mm-hmm. at all. You pass it this object and you say build annotation and you say build final file name and it doesn't care. It's that thing always works. You never have to change that thing. Now, if they ask what, if they want to change what the annotation is going to be, 
you just go change that other class. You don't have to change the class that's doing the writing of the file. Mm -hmm. If you want to change how it's parsing the file name, great, go do that. But you don't have to change the, yeah. the class that's actually writing the file, right? So I think that's the thing for me. That That's where it starts to feel gross is like, I'm like, okay, this is doing like two like two things. Great, no problem. It's doing like three things. Now it's doing four things. It's like, okay, well, if I have to change any of these four things, now I have to change this class every time where it's like, I can extract this thing and make it way easier to change in the future. Yeah. Make the change easy, then make the easy change. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. So with that being said, uh, we can jump into some of this then ping me stuff. Uh, we yeah. have got, I mean, why don't we start at like, I want to, I want to talk real briefly about the project and like the hierarchy of things. Mm -hmm. So what we've got is at the top level, we've got projects. So you come in, think of it if you're like using Envoy or something like that, you've got a project, which basically belongs to a single repo. That's your repo. That's your project. Underneath that project, you have a number of tasks. This represents all the scheduled things that are in your kernel.php, your, your console kernel.php. You have jobs that are scheduled. You have commands that are scheduled. You have closures that are scheduled. You have all different types of things that can be scheduled and like three different ways to schedule each one of them, right? Uh, with a, If you're scheduling a, uh, what is it? Is it a, if you're scheduling a job, is it a job? Yeah. You have to do it jobs. up. Yeah. You have to do the job up. If you're, if you're scheduling a command... I didn't even know you could do that until we were pairing on it the other day. And then I, then there was a whole edge case that we just didn't handle that at all. So I'm, I'm glad we stumbled upon that because yeah. now that we've got now we've got handling for it specifically. Yeah. If you're scheduling a command, you can use either like the name of it or you can use the actual class. If you're scheduling a... If you're just calling this, uh, this call, you can actually do a closure or you could do an invocable class. Or you could do, right, like, I mean, there's just a number of different ways you can do this, right? So yeah. we've got projects and we've got tasks, which represent all those scheduled things. And then once those tasks start uh, executing in your production environment, they will then ping, then ping me, they will then ping into then ping me, and they will start mm -hmm. an execution. An execution represents a single run of one of those tasks. That execution will actually have multiple associated pings, your ping start, your ping end, which is like the process started, the process finished, or the process skipped, whatever. And then once those things ping in, basically what we do is we have a couple timers that start running and tell us if a job never returned or if a job never ran, whatever, whatever. When any of those things happen, then we raise alerts. And if the status of an execution ever changes, then the status of a task changes. And if the status of a task changes, then the status of the project has to change. So it kind of like is this, um, it's events bubbling up, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a an execution that starts, you have a ping that starts, a ping never returns, it never finishes. So it times out, then the, the ping, that ping, or actually that execution times out. That times out the task, the task fails. Now the project is in a, is in a warning state, right? So that all worked fine and dandy. And then when I went to look at your PR tonight, I was noticing this new alert thing. And I'm like, what is this alert thing? Mm -hmm. And you explained, and I was very confused. I, was, I still have some questions. But my question was like, is this the alerts that are given to our users? And you said yes and no. And my question was, why can't we just use the notification DB driver, right? Why can't we just say, hey, user, here's a notification and we're going to store it in the database so that we have a record of that notification that was sent. But an alert is not that, however. So talk to me about like, what are these alerts? What does an alert model represent? So the alert, 
I don't even think about using the notification driver to be honest, but it's not it's necessarily not the, it, doesn't, it actually wouldn't yeah. work for what we're talking about. Yeah. Now that I realize that. So it's yeah, it's not necessarily a notification to the end user. It's more a historical point of reference for when a task failed or when an execution failed or when a project went into a warning state. So it's about giving us some resolution into when things have failed and when things have become healthy again so that not necessarily that we would trigger a notification to the user or or to send a Slack web, uh, you know, Slack ping or whatever. It's more around tracking the historical state so we can do some things around, you know, in the last month, your this task ended up failing this many times or you've got a clean bill of health. It's around... You know, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of an uptime check that you could say your website was up for 98% of the month or 99.5% of the month or whatever because the the key thing is if if you have things failing in the middle of the night, you might see that it had failed and you get the email in the morning to see that it had failed but you wouldn't really have much, you know, to go by if you look at that in a week or a month. You wouldn't know if a specific release triggered something to fail you know, all, the, all those kinds of historical metrics. And we don't have to keep these forever. It could also um, be too that it fails in the middle of the night and never it doesn't fail in the morning. Like it never, You can never reproduce yeah. the error during the middle of the day, right? So if you yeah. never have that historical yeah. record, you just get an email that it failed, but you come in in the morning and it looks green. Everything's good. Yeah. What happened? Right? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, you would get the, the Slack notification or you would get the email notification, but, you know, email is flaky. Maybe you the email ends up in spam or whatever and you don't see it. So, you know, having the alert history there, you can go back and see, okay, well, we did a deploy and it was failing here and then we did a new deploy and the new release and it was all fine. So, you know, you can see that there was something in a release that that had caused errors and I don't want to go too deep into providing insight over what that was. That's what that's what your error tracking software is for. Correct. Um, yeah. But in terms of like you did a release here and you can see that the release, the release changed and you started getting alerts and then you fixed that. And so, you know, it's all about the historical data because... All of our tables are otherwise transient. They will show you the the current status of a task or a project. And if you were to log into the the web interface at any given time, you would see that okay, my project is healthy now, or that my task is passing now, or whatever. Yeah. But click, you know, clicking into that, you could have like a little calendar view or something that shows you like three days ago. Yeah. You had yeah alerts for a period of time, and and you could drill down into that. You could see on a given day like it. It fails at the, on, on the hour, but it's okay after that and things like that. So these are all things that we can like add later, but I figure we, we need to capture the information now and then figure out what to do with it later because we can't get it back historically. Yeah, like We can't so, get it back retrospectively. So when I was looking at the alert table, I did have some questions. So we had like a created at and then we had a ended at. Mm-hmm. And what I understood this to be when you explained it to me is you said that this alert is going to happen every time the status of any of these items update. Is that true? Yeah. So, we, so, or is when, it only when it goes into an alert state? Right. So, if it goes into when like it goes a into an alert state, state. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, so, if it goes into warning, yeah. So then we can say that it was in a warning state for fifteen minutes, right? Sure. Or yeah. you could because then we could infer, you know, it it began to error. Or we saw it in a timeout state, and then eventually the task finished. So we could say that, you know, the alert did in fact complete. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. So we could show like amount of time down, amount of instances that in that it went down, right? And number of times that it went down. So it's historical. My second question was, does this alerts table also, is it also being used to determine the current statistics or the current state of these alertables? Because really, at the end of the day, this alert table will only show us anything that is in a bad state, right? If you just said mm-hmm. anything that has a started but not an ended at mm-hmm. for this whatever, this project or this, then I mean, really, that's like, here's everything. Here's everything that's in a bad state right now. You want to know what it is? Mm-hmm. Here it is. This executable failed. This task failed. This project is in a bad state. Whatever it is. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where it's going to be, right? It's going to be on the, t- it's going to be like, it's historical, yes. But if there's anything currently happening right now, it's going to be on the execution or the task or the project itself, but it will also exist in the alerts. Right. Yeah. So my question was, are we using alerts? Are we using that model to inform us about the overall state of a project or execution or, or whatever? Or project, well, or from, task? from the project and the task status, you can see that it is failing, but we don't we don't say that it started failing here and it ended failing there because in a single record, it's hard to track that because then that would be valid for the current failure but not for the next one because then the next one that resets that start and end time. So that's that's why we keep, because you can then look for a project, you can see if there are any current alerts and we can see the duration of the current alert. So we can show in the in the UI that your project is failing and it has been failing for the last 70 seconds or the last two hours or whatever. Yeah. And when you say that, what you mean is one of your tasks is failing, not all of them, like one of your tasks is failing. Could have been a bad deploy and suddenly nothing's nothing's running sure sure yep, like that you, makes sense. i mean and if it was a bad deploy say you left a, a semicolon in a config file somewhere and you're scrambling to figure out what is causing my website to have a white page right yeah we're just gonna we're just gonna see all of these tasks that suddenly failed and we go the the one thing that i was thinking about there is we need to figure out how we actually trigger the alert notifications because if you get into a situation where your entire schedule of tasks stops working, we're surely not going to send an alert for each of the tasks that are failing. You would roll or it are up. We? You would roll yeah. it up. So and that's the nice thing like with that. this yeah, with this alert thing, you could roll it up. You could just group yeah. it by project ID and you could say here are the things that are failing by that for projects for particular mm-hmm. a project or particular projects or whatever. But you would have to defer that somehow. Yeah. Because if you have multiple tasks that all run at the start of an hour, you've got you've got five tasks that all run at zero minutes past the hour. And one of them fails and then the next one succeeds. And like, cause we don't know when the schedule starts. We just know when the individual tasks start. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, there's, there'll be some interesting configuration around how people want to be alerted. Like, so, mm. you know, in error tracking services, around, so, so here's the deal with this. Like it's unlikely, I would say it's probably unlikely that a scheduled task is going to fail once and then work and then fail once and then work or fail, 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 then work. I mean, Mm. the you know maybe maybe that happens but i think probably for the most part if it's failing it's going to continue to i don't know i that's not necessarily true right there could be environmental things that are changing beneath Mm. but i don't know i'm not exactly sure what the alert story looks in that like for me like i want to know immediately when something stops working like i don't want to know 10 minutes from now in a roll-up i want to know now right now what happened yeah. Um, so maybe you do, maybe you do literally return an error or an email for each one of those or a Slack message or a Telegram message or whatever it might be. 
you mm-hmm. would return a error message for all of those. I mean, like, because here's the deal. If you get one message, you might like, oh, okay, I saw it. If you get 15, then you're like, holy crap, what's happening? Like yeah. the entire thing's yeah. blowing up. What's going on here? So anyway. Yeah, and I think, you know, aside from that situation where you have a failed deploy or your task scheduler stops running or whatever, I think it's highly unlikely. I think it's highly unlikely that you would have every single one of your tasks fail. And then... I mean, we could provide a daily or a weekly summary or something that says, you know, on this day, this project had this many failing tasks. Like yeah, and likely, likely if every single task is failing, oh dear is also going to be screaming at you saying, hey, your site's down. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's either probably like working or not working. So yeah, yeah idea will be screaming at you. What's the other one? Flare will be yelling at you. All of those, yeah. all of those tools will be yelling at you at once. So yeah, you'll know pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, I think, I think getting that is okay. I think you could probably look at customization later that says yeah, notify sure. me anytime a task is failing mm-hmm. and then just put in there that like if a task is failing, you will get one email for every failing task. Yeah. Or you could say notify when the project is failing and that way, you know, if the project is failing, the project is failing. Yeah. Yep. That makes and sense. And then you'd get an email saying this project has one or more failing tasks and we could actually show at that point. Now, at the point that we trigger that notification, and we could probably put some debounce in there that's like, don't send more than one notification every 10 minutes on the project level. Because that way you could send one. And then by the time that notification triggers on the project, you could say, okay, you've got six tasks with alerts right now. Yeah. And we can figure right. that yeah, out easily enough. In. Yep, for sure. Or if you say I want it for every task, then you would get six emails for each task. And I think that's probably simple enough to implement. Right. Do you want to be alerted when the project is unhealthy or when individual tasks are healthy? And you can you can tweak that as much as you want depending on the, yeah. The good thing is like, like honestly, if you if you just said alert me when the tasks are unhealthy, that's going to alert you when the project is unhealthy, right? Like because all Correct. of them bubble up. But you could I suppose say if you wanted to be alerted every time, like hey, I want to be alerted every ten minutes while the task is failing, or if you just said. My project is in an error state for this long. Like, hey, it's still not working. You might want to check this or something. Mm. You know, I'm not exactly sure, but yeah, yeah, those are those are interesting questions to have. We will. It's. I'm really thankful for the Laravel notification system. It's gonna. It makes all of this way easier, right? This whole yeah. thing is a lot easier. Uh, and I think the database uh, notification is actually a really interesting one too. So like, hey, which ones have they read? Which ones haven't they read? Which ones have they seen? Which ones haven't they seen? You know, yeah. If you're just doing it in like a drop down, I suppose. But anyway, uh, there was another thing I wanted to talk about, which talk, which also speaks to like the idea of scaling. Now, we are wanting to scale, yes, but we are wanting to launch worse. So... The concern for me is that a traffic or a site like ours is going to get quite a bit of traffic, right? Not like heavy traffic, but HTTP traffic, right? Where we're just going to be getting a lot of pings. My concern, I think, is that if we don't have something that's scalable in front of that, like that can queue these requests essentially, then you might end up in a difficult situation. Uh, Somebody like Use Fathom, who? Really? Use Fathom. Hmm. We know those guys. We, know we those do guys. know those guys. Yeah. They've, wonderful, they've, wonderful show sponsors. Show, they are. Uh, Fathom. They are. Maybe we should talk about them a little bit. I think so. I'm going to, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to hold that thought for a moment. How do we scale those front end requests? But before we do, let's talk about Fathom. 
So Fathom Analytics is simple analytics for your website. It's for marketers, for business owners, for bloggers. It basically gives you the simplest view with the most important information that you need to know about the visitors that are currently on your page. It's a real real time, uh, as well as any historical information that you might want to know. There are a couple of things that make Fathom really amazing. The first thing is that they're completely privacy focused. So they do not want to track your users around the web. They don't want to have to store cookies on their uh, computer. They want them to have anonymity, but they want you to know the pieces of information that you need to know in order to make effective changes on your website to better serve your customers. So no more of those cookie pop-ups that say, we use cookies on this site to track blah, blah, blah. They don't. So you don't have to have those anymore. The other challenge that you have whenever you're using a tool that's by a third party is that eventually Ghostery or Adblocker or something like that is going to figure out that Fathom, use Fathom, is being listed on a bunch of sites. Let's go ahead and block that, just like they do with Google Analytics, right? So this is a problem because you lose that ability to to get that traffic to figure out who that is. So on April 15th, the Fathom team published an article which talks about their ability to bypass ad blockers with custom domains. So the way that they do this is they give you a custom domain to serve your Fathom code from. And now everything just comes from your domain. So no problem. You don't have to, you don't have to get blocked. It won't get blocked, right? Because there's, it's just coming from, it's coming from you essentially. So this is going to be great. There's, It's not going to get blocked. You're still going to be able to get all the information from your customers that you need without having to be invasive or cookies and all that stuff. This is really, really awesome. I think it's uh, this is the first group that I have heard that's that's doing this. I've not heard of this before, really. So pretty cool, pretty innovative. I think this is a really great idea. And uh, I'm excited to see how this goes for them. I, I hope it goes really well. Yeah. So here's the deal. If you haven't checked Fathom out before, Go to usefathom.com slash north. You get a free trial and you also get 20 bucks, I think. 20 bucks? It's 20 bucks. I think it was 20 bucks towards your next month's bill. So you should check them out for sure. Super easy to get started. Beautiful dashboard for you to take a look at. And we would really appreciate it if you'd go check that out. And even if you don't get started, just, just go, go to the link. Usefathom.com slash north. Thanks. Okay. So the question is, how do we handle scale? right? How do we handle the scale of requests that we will likely receive? This happened because we were looking at, on our executions, we used to have a started at timestamp, an ended at timestamp, and a created at timestamp. But as I looked through the PR, I noticed Mr. Dorinda had taken off the started at timestamp. He said, well, you know, the created at timestamp is the started at timestamp. We were just going to take the started at value that the ping comes in with, because when you ping into us, it tells us, hey, we started this on this time. So it basically negates the delay that you have with the HTTP round trip, right? The request latency, if you will. So Mr. Dorinda had just said, well, we'll just take that time that they started it at and we'll set that as our created at date. But what we said was, well, what if there's a delay? Like what if there's a massive delay between the time that we get it and the time that we're actually able to store it in the database? We're going to have, we're going to have your time that you started it as in our created at date. And you said, well, do we care? And we don't really, unless we need to debug what's happening, right? If we Mm -hmm. notice that the started at time is five minutes after the, or five minutes before our created at time, we have these massive delays in place that are going to be causing all sorts of problems for how our timing functions work, right? 
Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to put that back in place. Yeah. Yeah. I've already, already flicked that back. I hadn't thought about that, but I was talking with Freik the other day and, and he sort of floated the idea to me, which got the, the gears turning that, you know, we're going to have a huge traffic spike at midnight. We're going to have a big spike every hour, every hour and, and, you know, possibly and every less minutes, so and every, 10 minutes and every, every minute yeah and a half hour <laughs> yeah so we're going to have those spikes now the plan is that we're going to put this all on vapor and right. the theory is that that will handle the scale for us to infinity <laughs> we'll yeah. probably need we'll probably need to do at some point some optimization around processing things at the moment we're just tossing everything on a queue and then vapor will scale to a point but when 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 I was speaking with Freik, what did occur to me is because we're on vapor, we could conceivably for larger customers, for people that want their own instance, we could conceivably just spin up a new environment. Hmm. And the client library is built. I had to do this so that I could test against different endpoints. The client library is built such that you could just give it a custom URL and it would go there, right? Nice. It would send all of yeah. your pings to that URL as opposed to the main then ping me one. Sure. Yep. So we could do custom subdomains and just deploy everything there. The question then becomes, does it all, like your pings go to a custom subdomain and then you get your own processes and workers and things like that. But then that just writes back to the main database. Right. And that way yeah. you just log in to then ping me for for everything rather than your own instance. So there's some consideration there, but it's it's definitely possible. That the way this is built, it can certainly like you could just self-host it if we were to make the code available for for the the application itself. Yeah. But there are there are certainly ways of doing it. That you know, doing one instance per client, like if you needed your own distinct instance could work but it means you've got to log into your own distinct instance we have to do maintenance of the, the you know if we push an update to one we've got to push an update to all of them and that gets i mean it's not hard because you know vapor we can just loop through all of the environments and say deploy there deploy there deploy there deploy there so conceivably that's that's possible um but i think you know using multiple multiple environments and then all writing to the same database that may have its own scale issues yeah but, you know, RDS should handle that, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I know Chris Vidal was talking the other day too, and he was talking about, I think he wrote some little Go stuff. And basically, I think what he did was they have an endpoint that is running a Lambda that then pushes things into an Elastic, an elastic hash, sort of like Q. And then, mm-hmm. their, and then their, their application essentially acts as like a, you know, just a big Q worker. So that they have infinite scale on that like on the the requests that they can handle right all those webhooks just come in go straight to a lambda and then just go straight up to the to a queue and then they just consume as consume them as quickly as they can yeah so pretty cool hey dude listen i would love to continue this on for about forever that would be great yeah but i am completely out of steam it is 12 11 and I am going to crash. And like I'm fully, I'm in all my clothes that I wore today. I'm probably just going to go lay on that bed right there, <laughs> tell Google to turn off the lights, and pass out. And so, nice. It's been good chatting, and uh, I am going to give all of the rest of the then ping me code the love that it deserves tomorrow by giving a sufficient and thorough 
pull request review and you will mm-hmm. learn what it feels like to be one of the people under the scrutiny the of my end. eye. Well, you've I, done no, well so far, but you could also just wake up and see everything's already been merged and I've moved on without you. <laughs> yeah, that's possible. That is possible. Dude, it is like I've been trying to figure out like how in the world do I make time for all of the things and it's just not, I, I, I don't know. I've not figured it out yet. So tomorrow is the day. Tomorrow is the yeah. day. I have I have cleaned off my list for today so that I don't have a lot to do tomorrow. Nice. Make it happen. Excellent. I am. I'm going to work more on the client library. Cool. So that we can support those few releases prior to when everything was added into Laravel. Yeah. Um. So when the events the events were added in like 6.0.4, the yeah. start and finished, and then the skipped event was added in 6.4.1. So I need to create a couple of releases in there. So I've shuffled some things around. I haven't tagged anything yet. It's just branches at the moment that I've renamed. So in theory, we'll be able to have full support for the entirety of Laravel 6 and 7. Yeah, I was almost thinking like, I was almost thinking like if we really needed to push back to like, if somebody was like, hey, I really need 5.8 or whatever, we could almost write like a, uh, hey, extend your console kernel from this special thing. And when you call, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like No, no, that's, that's what I've done, right? So I've, there is the ability in the service container to just extend things. So I've just told the container for Laravel 6.0 through 6.0.4, just use our schedule run. Yeah. And that, that just wraps around what is the current version. And then we just inject our own events in there and we fire those events. Yeah. And then there you go. Away you go. No problem. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's a good way to do it. That's an excellent way to do it. Yeah. All right, my friend. We'll see how that goes. Well, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, this is episode 74. Four. 74. Thanks so much for joining us. You can find show notes for this episode at northsouthaudio. Or no, sorry, northmeetsouth.audio slash 74. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Jacob and at Michael Dorinda. And we would really appreciate it if you'd share this podcast with your friends or rate it up in your podcatcher of choice. Five stars is definitely appreciated. Thanks for any of you who hung out with us on the live stream. Looks like we've got two whole viewers right now. <laughs> and uh, thanks for those of you who hung around. Rod, you were like our first fan there. So thanks, Rod, for hanging out with us at 1.30 a.m. Much appreciated. All right, everybody. Till next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay home. Yeah, bye. Bye.